Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Charles Lebrun, the creator of the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, was Louis XIV's most prolific and powerful artist. In this lecture, recorded on October 6, 2017, at the National Gallery of Art, Wolf Burkhardt, Furniture Research Curator at the National Trust England, shares his new book, The Sovereign Artist, Charles Lebrun and the Image of Louis XIV. This monograph examines Lebrun's wide artistic production, illustrating the magnificence of his paintings and focusing particularly on the interiors and decorative works of art produced according to his designs. Prior to Burkhardt's position at the National Trust, from 2009 to 2014, he was curatorial assistant at the Royal Collection Trust, where he co-curated The First Georgians, Art and Monarchy, 1714 to 1760, at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace, in 2014. It's incredibly um, humbling, um, humbling and exciting to be here today in the, uh, in the National Gallery of Art in Washington and to have been asked to uh, give this lecture. Um, I, I visited the gallery for the first time about six years ago and never dreamed that I would ever be asked to come and lecture here. So it's very, very uh, humbling and exciting. And before I start, I'd really like to th say thank you to um, Sarah and Alison, who have rel relatively short notice organized this um, event, and to um, uh, Jackie Mars, who suggested that I should um, give this lecture here today. Right, well, um, I can tell that um, Emily has read the, uh, the introduction to my book because she's uh, stolen my introductory sentence where I was going to explain why I have such a keen interest in Versailles. So, so I grew up in a little village called Chavonet just outside um, Versailles. And indeed, my mother to this day maintains that my keen interest in Versailles results from the fact that the day I was born, the ambulance took a wrong turn. So the first thing I saw was the, was a palace of Versailles, which there's an apocryphal element to the story since I was born uh, uh, several, well, seven hours later in hospital in Paris. But I did have, I always had a, a keen interest in Versailles, and indeed my mother took me to Versailles when I, were, I was in a grumpy mood in order to lift my spirits. And so the palace, was something very important and triggered my interest in art and architecture and, and was also always the palace against which I measured all the other European royal palaces that I then came to visit um, over, the, um, uh, over the course of my um, life. And then um, this man came into my life. This is um, Charles Lebrun, and this was the key artist of Louis XIV. This is a wonderful portrait bust in the Wallace collection, terracotta bust of Charles Lebrun uh, by Quesvaux, 1676. And it really um, portrays, it's really my favorite portrait of Lebrun because it really portrays the man at the height of power and influence because he was very much a man of power. Uh, he was described by Anthony Blunt as dictator of the arts in France, and that although obviously Anthony Blunt knew that this was an anachronistic term, and that has always really um, drawn a veil over the work of Lebrun. Um, Lebrun 
accumulated every key appointment in Louis XIV and his minister Colbert's art administration. So he was principal painter to the king, director of the Gobelin manufactory producing the furnishings for the royal palaces, director of the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, uh, surveyor of the king's pictures. So he was an incredibly influential artist. Um, and so, so you can see why you would want to describe him as a dictator, but that um, has also led people to shy away from his work. Um, there's relatively little literature on Lebrun. In fact, the, the book that, that I wrote, and this may sound really rather pompous, but it is actually the first assessment in English uh, of Lebrun's work and his different fields of activities. All the other literature is in um, French. And um, Lebrun, um, it, it's, it sort of rather surprised me as an undergraduate student when I uh, started taking interest in Lebrun and his lectures at the Royal Academy, how little, little literature there was. I was attending a course on classicisms where we were asked to write an essay about Lebrun's lectures at the Academy. And I was interested in understanding how Lebrun's lectures related to his actual work, because you know it's easy to say one thing, but do you actually stick to your own rules? And I was rather surprised to find that um, there was relatively little literature on Lebrun, at least at that moment. I mean, we're talking about 2009. And there, the two most important publications or two most comprehensive publications on Lebrun was a, an exhibition catalog from 1963, when the last great Lebrun exhibition took place at Versailles, uh, curated by the late uh, Jacques Tuillier and Jennifer Montague, who's still very much alive, um, and uh, a, a much earlier monograph, huge tome by Henri Jouin from 1889. And, um, so I thought, well, I think there's a little bit of scope here to, to do um, more. Now, just by means of introduction, um, Lebrun is, is one of the key figures of the 17th century and really, really should be there in the front with all the great artists like Gian Lorenzo Bernini, Nicolas Poussin, Rubens, Van Dyck, on whom obviously there are numerous publications. He was born uh, in 1619, uh, the son of a fairly mediocre sculptor, um, but in an artistic environment and therefore was uh, uh, discovered uh, at a relatively uh, young age, his talents. And it was the French chancellor, the Chancelier Seguier, who uh, was the person who first supported him and uh, funded uh, Lebrun's visit to Rome. Every French artist tried to travel to Rome uh, in order to study the antiques as well as the works of uh, uh, Raphael and obviously contemporary, well then, contemporary Italian Baroque art. And many of these French artists were actually perfectly happy in Rome, you know, being there in the sunshine, beautiful, uh, surrounded by beautiful things and didn't really want to come back to France. Now, Lebrun was quite different. He really wanted to return to France and make a name for himself and have a career. And um, he wrote repeatedly to the Chancelier Seguier and said, can I, you know, I've, I've seen the Vatican, I've seen, you know, I've seen all the ruins and everything, I've take, made sketches, etc. can I now come home? And eventually he is allowed to come back. And that's when he starts working for uh, numerous um, French patrons uh, and eventually enters the king's services. Now, the, the literature, as I discovered, um, was um, chopped up in slices. So Jennifer Montague, whom I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, is, uh, had written her PhD thesis on um, 
And can I just take this opportunity to emphasize that my book certainly does not read uh, like a PhD thesis. That's very, very important. Um, um, Jennifer um, worked on a particular aspect um, um, of Lebrun's work, and that was his lectures on the expressions of the passions. And what you can see here on the right are two drawings uh, by Lebrun himself that capture human emotions. So here you have fear, and here you have sadness. Because Lebrun was a follower of Nicolas Poussin, who had coined the phrase that um, history painting, which was the highest, um, uh, the highest form of uh, painting. History painting had to be legible. You had to be able to read a painting like a poem, like a text, which helped this status of, uh, or this, this characteristic of history painting helped establish painting as a liberal art, so an intellectual art that was uh, separate from the crafts. And so this is what Jennifer Montagu focused on. And also the other parts of the literature focused on particular aspects of uh, Lebrun's work, uh, either his old master paintings, his drawings, his lectures, and sometimes also his designs for decorative art. But what I was interested in uh, is really how these different fields of activities interrelated. Now, Lebrun has a, had a very difficult status in uh, art history, and that is, I think, for two reasons. Um, he, he was very, uh, well, first of all, um, I, I realize often when uh, I tell people that I work on Lebrun is that they haven't heard of him. Whereas in France, everybody knows of him, but outside France, not very many people know about him. And that is because of the fact that the French have the monopoly of French, of, of, of Lebrun's works. I think that there's probably 90% of all his paintings are in France and only 10% outside France. Um, there's hardly any Lebrun paintings in America. I, I think there are, I don't think there's a single one in Germany. So, you know, it's, they're very, very, um, they're quite rare outside France. So this is why you, you have maybe a lack of interest outside France. But also, Lebrun is so closely associated to Louis XIV. And with Louis XIV comes all that political baggage of absolutism, the absolutism that led to the French Revolution, that especially in the 20th century, uh, he wasn't a much appreciated artist. And indeed, as I said, Anthony Blunt, who was obviously the great uh, uh, scholar on Nicolas Poussin, said that he was a dictator of the arts of France, that he wasn't a great artist, but a great orchestrator of the, the building site at Versailles. And I think that that is a remark that's slightly unfair. And you can see that in the literature from the 19th and the 20th century, that Lebrun is sort of an artist that, that is sort of uh, linked to fashions that come and go in waves. So whenever Louis XIV is in fashion, so is Lebrun. And when the Sun King isn't, then nor is um, the artist. So luckily, when I was writing my thesis and eventually the book, I was sort of uh, surfing on that wave of fashion because whilst I was preparing the, uh, the book, uh, so too did two, uh, two uh, curators from the Louvre were preparing this exhibition uh, at the Louvre Lens, which is a satellite museum of the Louvre, um, so not in Paris, but in Lens, just very close to the Dutch border. And the interesting thing about that exhibition uh, was that it was done in this totally modern interior. Some uh, critics have criticized the fact that the exhibition didn't take place at the Louvre, where it should have, an artist of such importance should have been uh, uh, displayed at the Louvre itself and not 
many people uh, ventured to last. But this had a great advantage, that modern interior, because it helped you focus your mind just on the canvas, just on Lebrun's work. The exhibition that took place in 1963 was Lebrun very much in his natural environment, surrounded by great golden frameworks and marbles. Uh, and, and this here really helped you focus. And what it showed you was that Lebrun was a great and talented uh, painter and a very flexible painter too. I argue in my book that he's a very flexible man who feels very much at ease working in different environments, working with different patrons, um, you know, conversing with the King of France as well as with the craftsman with whom he collaborates. Um, but that's true also of his painting. He really tries to please his, uh, his clients. So he will not only, you know, he's associated with French classicism, but actually when he comes back from Rome in the 40s and 1640s and 1650s, he tries out all different kinds of styles. He even try, you know, follows the Caravagists. So that was very interesting. And that, that exhibition really helped us understand that Lebrun wasn't also, wasn't only a great orchestrator, he actually was a great artist in his own right. And this is just one example. I think this is probably one of his most uh, accomplished uh, canvases, not a very large picture. It's at the Louvre, and it shows a Sacre Conversazione, a holy family, uh, with at the center, uh, with this beautiful and very uh, elaborate um, geometrical uh, composition. At the center, you have the Christ child sleeping. And if you look at it, I mean, if you, the quality of that child, the weight, you can really, it's like a marble sculpture. You can really feel the weight of a sleeping um, baby. And I think a picture like that definitely shows you that Lebrun was a, a great artist. And then there's this picture, which is the great discovery of the last uh, few years. It's the uh, family of Eberhard Jabach, who was a German merchant who settled in Paris and was a great uh, collector of, uh, of art. And I think the only man who can claim that he was painted by Van Dyck, Lili, Lebrun, and Hyacinthe Rigaud at the end of his life. So really key uh, collector of the 17th century. He had two of these paintings made, and after his death, they were both sent to Cologne, to his family. Um, one ended up in English, uh, in England, in an English collection in the, uh, in the 18th century, and the other one went to Berlin. The Berlin version was destroyed in the war, and that was a more famous version of which we only have a black and white photograph. And then this one suddenly came up on the art market uh, two and a half years ago, having been hidden in a British country house for a century and a half. And it was acquired by Mrs. Reitzman for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where it is today. So the Metropolitan Museum, for instance, as I said earlier, the French have the monopoly on Lebrun pictures. Uh, three or four years ago, the Metropolitan Museum didn't have a single Lebrun, and now they have two. Um, and I can tell you that um, my colleagues in, uh, at the Louvre and indeed at the National Gallery in London you know, putting it mildly, have reservation as to, you know, the fact that this picture is now here rather than in their museums. But, I mean, I must admit, um, this is a picture that is so wonderful, and it's fantastic that it is at the Metropolitan Museum on permanent display, and I can only encourage you all to go to the Met and look at it, because this is, again, 
This is one of these pictures, when you see it here on the screen, it really does not translate the, the incredible craftsmanship that is behind um, this uh, picture. And indeed, the, uh, the, National, um, the um, Metropolitan Museum has dedicated its last um, bulletin uh, to this um, very picture. These two pictures were done in the 1650s, uh, before Lebrun enters the king's services. And it's true that after that, when the moment he enters the king's services, he becomes a particularly busy artist working on a wide array of different, um, uh, uh, different subjects and different media uh, supervising works. And that may be to the detriment to him to his paintings, because he just doesn't have the time to paint um, himself a lot. Um, this here shows him, this is the portrait by Nicolas de Largillière. So again, he's not even able to produce his own self-portrait. Indeed, the only uh, other so-called self-portrait we have of Lebrun is not by his own hand, but by, by a student, because he just doesn't have the time to do it himself. But it shows him here in 1686, after he's just completed the whole of Mirrors at Versailles. And you can see here he's um, pointing at the Modelo, pointing at the king, Louis XIV. And he surrounds himself with antique sculpture and here a print of another picture that he paints. So this is really Lebrun at the height of his power. And when I um, thought about writing about Lebrun, there were two questions that I asked myself. Um, the first is, so the exhibition at the Louvre Lens, as I said, made one particular point, that is that Lebrun was, uh, was a great artist in his own right. And what they tried to do is, and, and as I said, that modern interior helped doing that, they, they dragged Lebrun out of the shadow cast by the Sun Kings. They really wanted to appreciate Lebrun as an artist in his own right. Now, I did quite the opposite because um, I thought what's so interesting, I mean, Lebrun deliberately always associated himself with Louis XIV. He clearly wants to be known as the sole translator of the king's sovereignty and claim for absolutism. So I was interested in that particular uh, relationship between Louis XIV and Lebrun, um, but also how Lebrun's different fields of activities interrelate. His lectures at the Academy, with his own paintings, with his designs for architecture and um, decorative arts. And, um, and, and how really Lebrun, excuse me, um, translates the king's claim for sovereignty and the king's grandeur into various different uh, forms and, and really portrays the king using different media. Now, a starting point for the study of royal portraiture is this uh, publication by Louis Marin, Le Portrait du Roi, The Portrait of the King, which is a seminal uh, publication for art historians uh, who study royal portraiture of the 17th and 18th centuries. This is, uh, this, is a, this is a book that came out in 1981. It's a very, it's quite a difficult, it's quite a difficult uh, text, very new art history. Um, but it's quite important because it, well, it's very important, it, it, um, Louis Marin studies a text. He studies a pamphlet written by Lebrun's contemporary, André Philibien, who was the historiographer of the Royal Academy. And he, he studies this text, which, Lebrun, uh, which Philibien wrote about a portrait that Lebrun made of the king. So it's a text describing the portrait of the king and how Lebrun achieved to portray the king. Now, it's interesting, this, because um, Louis Marin discusses the different layers of portraiture. So you have the text, which is one layer, the text that describes the portrait. 
And then you have the portrait that describes or portrays the man. So you have the text, the actual portrait, and the man. And the man, that is the king of France, is supposed to be the portrait of God. So you have these four layers. God, the king who's the portrait of God, the picture, that's the portrait of the king who's the portrait of God, and then the text that portrays all three other layers. Um, and there's two things that struck me when reading Louis Marin's text. The first is that um, Louis Marin not once mentions Le Brun in his text. The, 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 um, uh, or, or he, he says that it's Le Brun, but Philibien in the original text never mentions Le Brun. He always says Le Peintre, the painter. And that's very important because that implies that Le Brun has a monopoly. He's the only painter who can portray or capture the image of the king. And that's very important because th this is obviously in that idea of Le Brun seeking absolute control over the visual arts. Um, and you know all the, 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 the typical phrase about Louis XIV, one king, one state, one religion. Well, and there was only one artist who could summarize all this. So that is one point. And then the other point was that Louis Marin, in the discussion of the text of Philibien, never talks about the actual picture. So he talks about those four layers, but never about the picture. Why? Because the picture was lost in the revolution. But we do know all through uh, copies how roughly what the picture looked like. Now this here is a version uh, in France, the Musée de la Chartreuse, which is probably contemporary by a student of uh, Le Brun. So this, this is probably quite close to the original picture. This is probably a later version um, with inserted here this much later face of Louis XIV, quite close to yeah, Saint-Rigaud's famous portrait from um, 1701. But the reason why I'm showing you this one is that in the background you have the different allegories as described by Philibien in the pamphlet. So using those two images, you can get quite a good sense of what the original picture looked like. And what Lebrun does here, he portrays a young monarch who's just, cut, you know, just received the reign of powers uh, on a horse uh, very much at ease with these reigns of powers. Because Louis XIV became King of France aged five. So he was very young when he became King of France and obviously didn't govern himself. But it was after his regent, the Cardinal Mazarin, died in 1661 that Louis XIV became King of France or reigning monarch of France, but he was still only in his early 20s. So how do you convey, how do you convince the French subjects that this is a powerful man, a man capable of reigning. Well, that you do through the creation of images such as this one and pamphlets that describe these images. Now, Le Brun uses, uh, Le Brun never throws anything away. So he makes all these drawings and designs and, and proposals for the king. And then sometimes uh, the king will accept them and sometimes he will dismiss them. But Le Brun keeps them and creates this huge archive of drawings from which then his studio can, can, can make use uh, over the course of his career. So sometimes you will find that Le Brun drew something in the 60s uh, for a completely different context and reuses it in the 80s um, uh, in, a, in a totally different context. And this here is one example. So you can see this drawing that is very close to the painting that I just showed you, but it was made for uh, a different image of Louis XIV, this uh, engraving here of a thesis of uh, Colbert's son. Um, but it, it, it shows the same image. And in that respect, Le Brun sort of created like a king's brand, an easily 
uh, recognizable visual language uh, that was associated with um, Louis XIV. But it's rather difficult to portray a monarch, such a young, young monarch who hasn't achieved anything yet. And one way to circumvent that is to uh, portray him as someone else. And so um, one option was to portray Louis XIV as Alexander the Great. And this is probably the most iconic image by Charles Lebrun, the queens of Persia at the feet of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great is here entering the tent of um, the queens of Persia. He's just defeated King Darius. Uh, he just killed the king of Persia. And so he enters this, this tent um, and, uh, and the queens are very worried indeed uh, because they think they, they too will be put to the sword. And to, um, to make the scene even more dramatic, um, there's a confusion that takes place. As you can see here, the mother of the king, the Dowager Queen, uh, uh, prostrates herself not in front of Alexander, but his friend, Hephaestion. Um, so the confusion is there. And now they're even more worried because they got the, the, the monarch confused. But uh, Alexander um, reacts with much grace, saying that his friend is also Alexander, because the body of the king transcends through all his subjects. Now, the key thing here is that this is a picture that very much captures the essence of French art theory for the 17th century, and that is that taken directly from French drama theory, that is that idea of unity of time, place, and action. So that you have here on the canvas all the protagonists united in one action at one moment. And that only could happen in the highest echelons of society. If you look at French drama, that is always happens at royal court, always amongst the aristocracy, because only a prince and princess can actually feel true pain. Um, whereas, you know, or, or the comedies always take place, oops, uh, amongst the, the, the um, as they would say, the lower orders. And you can have that, you can, you can see that in the picture in terms of the reaction, the grace with which the queens react. So you can see um, uh, uh, it's rather, the, the, the dowager queen is rather serene here, and so is the, the, the uh, wife of uh, Darius. And this is obviously reminiscent of uh, 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 the virgin and child. And then the princesses here, the youngest princess, looks slightly more worried, whereas the staff and, and the slave here are, are reacting. You have here this man with this flame red shirt. They all react completely hysterical because they're worried that they all might um, die. Now, this picture stands at the very beginning of Lebrun's career at the French uh, court. This is the picture that is said to have afforded him the position of principal or first painter of the king. And it was actually partly painted in the presence um, of the king at uh, Fontainebleau. And um, it was an iconic image uh, throughout uh, the, the 17th and 18th and 19th century, which is why this picture today, it's roughly that size, uh, is not in a very good state because it's been cleaned again and again. And you can see here these, these uh, gray shadows. It's sadly not a picture that is in a particularly um, good uh, state today. The, the, the queens of Persia were at the beginning of a series of, of depiction of Alexander the Great. So Lebrun Le captures all these scenes, the Battle of Alexander the Great, that are then woven into tapestries. And of course, also one uh, element about portraying 
Louis XIV is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had one famous artist who portrayed him, although there's no works of him that survive, and that's Apelles. And so Lebrun saw himself as the Apelles of the 17th century, and the pamphlets and, and contemporary texts describe him as such. So he produces these paintings of the Battle of Alexander the Great that are woven into tapestries, and then he starts another series of tapestries, or designs another series of tapestries, and that is that of the history of the king that sort of then are matched up to that of Alexander the Great. And this is, a, this is one of the tapestries. Just to get you a sort of sense of scale, the, the queens of Persia are roughly that size, uh, if you see it in the flesh. Um, and that's also wonderful when you stand in front of it. It hangs slightly lower, so you're really drawn into the scene because you are the beholders on eye level with the princesses. So you're really drawn into the action, uh, making it even more clear that this is really supposed to be a scene like a, like a play. Uh, the tapestry would be probably twice the size of what you can see here. They're huge tapestries. And someone asked me the other day about the color. Those are tapestries woven in silk uh, and uh, gold and silver thread. So the silver tarnished and the silk, the, 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 those 17th century dyes are quite aggressive on the silk. Obviously, there's the, the impact of, of sunlight, but also the, the um, damage caused by the dyes on the silk. This is why the, the colors of these tapestries aren't as vibrant as they would have been um, originally. This scene is one of the series of the history of uh, Louis XIV, so the first decade of his reign, mostly military actions, but also his coronation and marriage. And this is the last scene, and it shows you Louis XIV arriving at the Gobelin manufactory, the manufactory that created numerous furnishings, and especially the famous silver furniture uh, for the royal palaces. The silver furniture was designed by Lebrun, uh, a huge suite of solid silver furniture for the whole of mirrors and the king's apartments, all of which eventually was melted down in 1689 to create funds for further um, military actions. And what you have here, so you have here Lebrun, who points at the great array of different objects produced at the Gobelins, tables, Pietro Dura tabletops, cabinets, silver, tapestries, etc. Um, and what's interesting is that um, is how Lebrun presents the king here. And as I said earlier, he reuses designs. He creates a, a recognizable language. So what today we would call copy and paste. So this here, for instance, is a scene taken from one of the other tapestries of the series, slightly sadly not, not in the best state. And if you look here at this silver dish, which no longer survives, you can see that the same scene of the king on horseback uh, exists on the silver dish. So he perpetually makes cross-references between his different works. And here I'm showing you two, um, uh, two works, that two of the very rare works of, uh, that survived from the Gobelin manufactory. Obviously, at the end of the 18th century, the, uh, the French Revolution hit. And so a lot of the works uh, were destroyed, but also these huge cabinets came out of fashion as early as the beginning of the 18th century. So all these Pietro Dura plaques were taken apart and introduced into new uh, works. This is, one of the, this is one of a pair, these huge cabinets made at the Gobelin, the last set um, made by the Roman 
cabinet maker Domenico Cucci for Louis XIV and is now in the collection of the Duke of Northumberland at Annick Castle. And this here is the most amazing uh, Pietra Dura tabletop. So the Gobelin originally only produced tapestries. And when Lebrun enters the scene with the support of Louis XIV's minister Colbert, they introduce all these new manufactories. So the silver manufactory, the, the cabinet workshop, and also a Pietra Dura manufactory. So these are these, are these uh, uh, sort of paintings made out of precious stones and marbles. And this is very much a Florentine and Roman technique. So what Colbert and Lebrun do, they import uh, foreign know-how, so Flemish tapestry weavers and Italian craftsmen for the, for the Pietro Duran cabinet making. So, so these were made by Florentine artists. And this is a version that is, uh, this is a tabletop at the Louvre um, uh, that was probably one of the earliest one made in the early 1670s by the Florentine artists. Um, and what was so interesting, um, Art historians, particularly those focusing on the decorative arts in 17th century France, will be very familiar with this image because it's illustrated in every single book on French luxury goods um, uh, in the 17th century. And yet, there was hardly any literature um, discussing the picture uh, as a pictorial composition in its own right, which surprised me because it was designed by Lebrun. So there's clearly more than just a depiction, just a, a record of what's going on. That is uh, a more complex composition. And so what you have here is, is Louis XIV and their uh, Lebrun. And you can really tell that Lebrun wants to be associated to the king. So you know he's pointing at the king, and it's very much here in that line of composition. And then there was this man here. And he had, in the past, been misidentified as Lebrun. And I wondered, well, why, why is that? But also then, who is this if this isn't Lebrun? And I then discovered this is a man called Gédéon Berbier du Metz, and he was the head of the French royal wardrobe. So he assessed the quality of the works that entered the royal wardrobe. It was the big furniture store of, uh, of, of um, the royal family. So in a way, he, he assesses the quality, and, and Lebrun produces the different works. And if you look at this triangular composition with Louis XIV with his open arms, you can think of Louis XIV as the prime producer and consumer of French luxury goods. Because everything you see here was made for the king, but it was also made, as it were, according to his ideas or design. Design is, the, is a key word that, that they would have used. So, as it were, Lebrun is his life, left hand and, and Berbier du Metz his right hand. One is the actual producer and the other one is the actual um, consumer. Now, don't worry, you don't have to read this. This is just to uh, illustrate a point. Um, uh, you can see here this blue text here. I'll, I'll explain to you yet now. Um, I'm just going to swap the image, otherwise you're all going to fall asleep when looking at that um, text. The, this is a depiction that is not only a portrayal of Louis XIV, but it's very much also a portrait of Lebrun, how Lebrun himself wanted to be perceived by the outside world in relation to Louis XIV. Now, there was a magazine in France called the Mercure Galant, and it was a bit like a sort of a, a mixture of Vogue magazine and Hello magazine. So it was sort of a, a, a magazine for fashionable society in France that would tell you the ongoings of the court at Versailles, but also other European courts and a little bit of gossip. And the editor of the magazine 
wrote to Lebrun and asked him for a description of the Gobelin manufactory and say, what's going on there? Well, can, you, can you tell us more about it? And the letter of Lebrun survives. And this is what I showed you here. This is a, this is a transcription in the book. And the blue text here is quoted directly from Lebrun. But what, what the editor did, he wove this text into a longer story. He didn't say this is a letter by Lebrun. He just took the information, but wove it into another story, giving it uh, another author or another name, say, or another person telling the story. The story he tells is uh, a group of Frenchmen uh, sitting in a tavern in Paris, having a beer, and a, a German coming in and saying, uh, excuse me, uh, could you please tell me something about the Gobelin manufactory? Because all of Europe is raving about the Gobelin manufactory, but we know so little about it. Can you tell us more about it? And then the Frenchmen say, oh, well, you know, we French, we don't really know much about our own art. And, you know, other, other people are much better informed about what's going on in our country. Uh, unfortunately, we don't really know much about the Gobelin. Now, luckily, an Italian comes in, and the Italian says, well, actually, I, I know about the Gobelin because uh, I've got some friends who, uh, who work at the Gobelin, so I can tell you all about it. And that's when he starts quoting Lebrun's description of the Gobelin manufactory. Now, the interesting thing about that uh, description, and I think that the, that the nationalities of the different people involved do play a role, is that um, in the text, the editor, we've wove in various superlatives, such as saying that Louis XIV is the greatest monarch of the universe. But he puts that phrase into the mouth of an Italian. So the Italian acknowledges the fact that Louis XIV is the greatest monarch of the universe and produces the greatest works of art. And that's really, really important because France at that moment tried to gain artistic supremacy over Rome. They wanted to be better than ancient Rome. And so, so the fact that an Italian acknowledges the grandeur of Louis XIV is really, really important. Now, you can ask yourself, why a German? Why is it the German who asked that question? Maybe I'm reading too much into this because I'm German myself and I grew up in France. But the, it's quite amusing if you look up the, the contemporary uh, references to, to Germans is that they're often rather considered Philistines. And that may be still the case uh, today. But if you look, the, Fre the, the, the French word for German, Allemand, at the time in the contemporary literature, uh, contemporary dictionary, an Allemand is, is an ignorant. It's someone who doesn't know the price of things. So this is, very, uh, this is very appropriate that there is this naive German who doesn't understand anything about art who asks that question. Now, one reason why I think this is quite an interesting uh, story is uh, looking at another chapter, very important chapter of French art history, and that is Gian Lorenzo Bernini's visit to Paris in 1665, a key chapter in the history of art in France. Gian Lorenzo Bernini was, uh, was summoned to Paris in 1665, got the permission of the Pope to come to Paris um, to design a new east facade for the Louvre. That was before Versailles was the headquarters of the monarchy. There was still the Louvre in Paris. And Colbert hoped to turn the Louvre into this grand residence, uh, the center of the world. He wanted to make the Louvre what he called an abrégé du monde, so a the, the summary of the world. And he, he wrote to Poussin saying, I'd like to have Bernini come. And what he also wanted is to create interiors and the different styles 
of, uh, of the nations of the world. So he wanted to have uh, rooms in the Turkish style, Persian style, Chinese style, German styles, etc., so that all the envoys that would come to France would feel at home. So Bernini comes to Paris, and this is, this is a notorious visit because he, he produces several drawings, several designs for the Louvre East facade. This is the most famous one. This is the first of four different proposals, which was rejected on the grounds that it was completely impractical for the inclement weather conditions in, in Paris with that open lodger here. Um, but um, Bernini's visit is famous. It's, it's very, very well recorded because Chanteloup uh, wrote a diary. Um, he's very famous because he was incredibly rude to almost everyone in the French art establishment. I mean, almost everyone except for the king. So when Bernini leaves Paris, you can sort of almost hear this gasp of relief amongst the French art establishment that finally this man is out of the way. And some art historians have almost have, have even argued that this was a staged visit so that from that moment on, the French could seek independence and indeed supremacy of the, over the Italians. Now, one key element, as I, you know, going back to the story I mentioned earlier about the Gobelins, is that Lebrun at that moment was already director of the Gobelins. And as I said at the beginning, he had at that moment relatively little time for his easel paintings. And it's true, there's hardly any easel paintings that he painted in the 60s and 70s. And Bernini, who I think is sort of polite about Lebrun, but you know, their relationship I think must have been tense. Um, he several times suggests that, he says, he makes a remark, well, I think, you know, it's so sad that Lebrun doesn't have enough time for his paintings. And wouldn't it be better to get someone else to be director of the Gobelin? You see, I have this man in Rome, um, uh, he's German, Giovanni Paolo uh, Tedesco, uh, Juan Paul Shaw, and I think he'd be brilliant as a director of the Gobelin because he's a great designer of, of silver and furniture, etc. Now, nothing comes of that. Lebrun, I'm sure, would never have agreed to have someone else take his place. But it's quite interesting that uh, Bernini makes that suggestion and that we find this, this German again in, uh, in the Mercure Galant. So Bernini leaves Paris. The, the Louvre East facade isn't designed. And what happens then? Colbert uh, brings together what he calls the Petit Conseil, the small council, uh, including two architects, Claude Perrault, Louis Levaux, and the painter Charles Lebrun. And this is what they will deliver. This is the Louvre East facade as we know it um, today. And I was actually saying to Emily earlier, because I've only just arrived in, in Washington, I know that there are, there's a government building here next to the Capitol that quotes this, these end parts of the Louvre East facade, and I just cannot remember which government building um, it is. But it's a very, very important uh, facade, this Louvre East facade, and you have the council coming together, and Colbert, uh, Col the, the paperwork of the foundation of the council exists, and Colbert specifically says, I want all of you to work together. It's a collaborative effort, and I don't want any of you to claim authorship to the detriment of the others. So this is really very, very important. This is supposed to be the facade designed by all three men. And it's quite ironic because throughout the 20th century, architectural historians have tried to disentangle and say, is it Louis Levaux or is it um, Claude Perrault's facade? Lebrun was completely neglected in that um, debate. But what's so interesting is that in that paperwork, in that Colbert says, you know, 
you're all going to work together, and I don't want anyone to sort of claim credit. Um, and the next paragraph says, oh, and Lebrun is going to be in charge of sculpture. And Lebrun is not an architect. He is a painter. He, he, I argue in the book, would like to be principal architect of the king, but not because he wants to be an architect, but because he seeks power. Um, he produces his own designs, and you can see here, this is really a painter at work. He uses his design for the Louvre's facade like a blank canvas which he covers in sculpture. So what he does here is, is really interesting, again, if you compare Lebrun to Bernini. Bernini is known for very focused iconography, focusing on one very particular subject, very meticulously thought through messages. Whereas Lebrun is being criticized because he brings all the vocabulary together. You know, he takes a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and combines it. But this, in this case, was exactly the point of the Louvre. It was supposed to be the center of the universe. So what he does here, he just uses um, a, a, a wide array of different symbols. So you have here at the center the bust of Louis XIV, flanked by slaves, the Dioscuri, who lead the eye up to the bust. So again, this is very much the work of an artist. You have a roundel of Minerva, of Hercules. Then you have the arms of France, Navarre, flanked by um, these trumpeting fames. You have the name of Louis XIV inscribed here, which is very uh, rare and as really comes from, a, um, from the ch context of building churches. And then here you have the chariot of Apollo, the, the, the uh, god of the sun. And so you really get that sense that this is supposed to be the palace um, of, of the sun, the palace of um, Louis um, the Fourteenth. Now this uh, design never materializes. Here's again a, a better um, uh, image. But you can see this is, this is how Lebrun works in architectural terms. So this design is never delivered. But I'd like to show you another project at the Louvre that was quite significant for uh, Lebrun's career. This is what the Louvre looked like in the 17th century. This is an engraving from the 18th century. And you can see here the Louvre incomplete. You know, the Louis, Louis XIV loses the interest in, Versailles, in the Louvre and moves to Versailles, never completes the Louvre. So you have here all these open roofs here. This is where the famous pyramid of the Louvre is today. This is the Tuileries Palace, which was destroyed in the 19th century. And then you've got this endless long gallery of the Louvre. This is the long or grand galerie du Louvre. And here you have the pavilion dividing it up into two, two halves. Some of you may have been in that gallery. It's today where the uh, uh, Italian Renaissance pictures are hung. And if you look, there's a door here that will lead you to the Mona Lisa. So this room still exists um, today, but looked quite different in the 17th century. This is the only visual record we have in color that exists of that uh, space, and that in spite of the fact that it's the largest secular space in Paris. I mean, huge space, 445 uh, meters long. And this is quite ironic because if you look at that image, this is taken from an 18th century snuff box. This is a reverse of a snuff box. In reality, this image is that size. It's absolutely tiny. But what I want to show you here is the vaults. You have here this wonderful uh, decoration captured here in, in that snuff box, and you get the sense here. This is the decoration of the vaults of the, um, of the Long Gallery of the Louvre, and you can see here these, this green spot here. This is a decoration that was deployed by Nicolas Poussin, the great role model of um, Charles Lebrun. He um, was one of these French artists who went to Rome and didn't want to come back. 
but he was summoned by Louis XIII, Louis XIV's father, to come to Paris um, to become principal mate of the king. So Poussin accepts and comes to Paris in 1641 not knowing what he's supposed to be doing. Now Poussin, and you've got several wonderful pictures here at the National Gallery, he's famous for small, highly elaborate, highly intellectual and poetic canvases. Now the first assignment he gets when he arrives in Paris is to decorate the entire vault of the whole of, uh, of the uh, Long Gallery of the Louvre, 4,000 square feet worth of surface. And so, I don't think Poussin particularly liked that. He's not a decorator. He's, a, he's, as I said, an intellectual painter. But obviously, you know, if the king gives you these orders, you get started. And this is one of um, uh, Poussin's own drawings, which is now at the Hermitage. And what he did is a theme on the life and labors of Hercules. That was because the Bourbon kings of France claimed descendants from uh, Hercules being uh, semi gods, and he combined that with plaster casts taken from the Column of Trajan, who was again associated with Louis XIII, and then had those painted green so to, to emulate bronze, and this is what you saw in um, the watercolor. Now, after nine bays out of the 45 bays of the gallery, um, Poussin suddenly thought, oh, you know, I really, uh, I really should go to Rome and pick up my wife, I'll, I'll, I'll come back. Uh, and obviously, needless to say, he never returned. So after that, um, uh, Louis, the, Louis XIII dies, so the gallery is never completed. And then the adjacent gallery, the Petite Galerie, uh, later Galerie d'Apollon, uh, uh, is destroyed by fire in the 1660s. So when they rebuilt that part of the palace, um, they also had to see what they were going to do with the long gallery, which had partly been damaged by the fire. And then Lebrun, who at that moment was the principal painter of the king, had an idea, and that was to finish the first half of the gallery, continuing Poussin's scheme, and that he would then design a scheme for the second half of the gallery. And this is very important because this gave Lebrun the opportunity to compare himself to his great role model. We don't know what he's done. I, 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 I'm, I believe that he probably would have uh, also reinterpreted the subject of Hercules, trying to really compare himself directly with the master. He never did any, he never completed the, that scheme because, um, uh, because, as I said, Louis XIV loses interest in Versailles and moves to, uh, to Louvre and moves to Versailles. Uh, this here is a watercolor in the Albertina in Vienna by the student of, or the, 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 the studio artist of Le Brun, Louis de Boulogne, who's going to continue the scheme of, of Poussin. You can see that very well, how, how this watercolor is following the original scheme. Now, what Le Brun does um, design is huge carpets for the floor of the Long Gallery. And this is a fascinating subject, which uh, I could give a whole other lecture on, um, but uh, you can buy the book and read the relevant chapter and you'll have all the information. Um, this, is, um, this is one of 93 carpets woven for the Long Gallery of the Louvre to cover the entire surface. And um, this, is, this is one example that is at the Met, also a gift from Mrs. Reitzman, however, from the 1950s. Um, and it shows one of these uh, beautiful carpets, huge carpets. I mean, this is, 
This what you see is much smaller than they are in real life. These are nine meters, they're nine meters long. That's the width of the gallery. 103 carpets were woven. Only 93 were needed for the gallery, but Louis XIV kept giving them away as diplomatic gifts, which is why you now find them in other um, collections as well. They're, they're all different. They all follow a similar pattern. So they all have this black background with these scrolls and then a polyangular uh, um, uh, a central element with panels at each end, either in grisaille, a, an allegory or a landscape. And you can see that the width uh, varies. The, the ones with the landscape were always in the bays where the windows were and the ones with the grisaille where the walls were. And this is a particularly well-preserved one, which is at the Mobile National in Paris. And I'm told that the reason why we think the reason why this one's so well-preserved is that it was never really used and rolled out. I mean, they are, the thing is that Louis XIV loses interest in the Louvre. He never, the carpets are never rolled out in their entirety. And then they're used in different palaces for different purposes. But you can see this was designed for a specific room. And this is a very awkward shape. You know, this is not something you can roll out in a drawing room. It looks a bit odd. But also this particular one, there's one area where there is a, there's a big spot. And what we think is that a rat walked into the rolled up carpet and died there. And then that's the reason why uh, this carpet was never uh, uh, used and therefore the colors are so beautifully um, preserved. Now, um, this here is a digital uh, uh, image that I uh, commissioned for uh, the book and it shows you the carpets rolled out as they never were. Um, it, it took 20 years to make the carpets. It was an, a, a whole industrial branch was created to make these carpets and then they never really rolled out together. Um, but the interesting thing about this and about this architectural space, so you see here the carpets designed by Lebrun facing Poussin's decoration. The carpets, I think, were used for a particular ceremony that, was, that took place in the long gallery of the Louvre, and that was the touching for the king's evil. The king walked through the gallery, and uh, a huge crowd, sometimes thousands of people, gathered in the gallery, were lined up at each side of the king, and those were all deceased of scrofula. So he would touch them and say, the king touches you and God heals you. And the people there were arranged, and people from all over Europe came, Catholics from all over Europe, um, and they were arranged according to their nations, always the Spanish first and the French last. So the idea was really to bring the entire world into one room. And this is also what the iconography of the carpets is about. It's what Colbert said about the Louvre, is bringing the whole universe together. So what Lebrun does with all these carpets, you know, they have, the, the iconography is um, the elements, uh, allegories, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the arts, sciences, etc. So he rolls out the entire universe at your feet. And rather like your universe, when you're standing at one end, you can't see um, the other end, it's really infinite. But the interesting thing about that, or the irony, is that because you, you wanted to gather the whole world into that room, what actually is the fact today is that the carpets are spread, oops, spread all over um, the world. So here, we, we, in that image, we sort of rolled out some of the carpets as they would have been in the right sequence. So here, for instance, this carpet is the one at the Met. This carpet here is at Volvicomte. This carpet here is at the Louvre, etc. So they're all now in different um, places. 
And this one here is in Naples. And this is the first carpet of the series. It's very much like a frontispiece, like a cover of a book that advertises what the rest of the series was going to be about. This is a carpet that was made for a room adjacent to the long gallery, the Salon Carré, the square uh, uh, salon, who, which, which would have been the room you would have entered before entering um, the gallery. And this again, you know, nine by nine meters, huge carpet, um, now in the Royal Palace in Naples, um, uh, and has a very interesting history because Napoleon, it was, it was used by Louis XVI at Fontainebleau in his dining room. And the amazing thing is that um, they had to cut a bit out for the fireplace. And then after the revolution, this bit was um, fitted in with a, with a fragment from another carpet. And you can see this here. This actually has been matched up. It's not the right piece. And then also after the revolution, uh, all the royal arms were taken out. So what you can see here are these blank shields where the French arms and the arms of the kingdom of Navarre would have been, and also the crowns have disappeared. But what you have here is, you know, Apollo, Louis XIV at the center, at the center of the world, as it were, at the center of France. And in the corner, you have allegories depicting the four, a con the four then known continents of the world. So you have Europe, um, America, or the Americas, Africa, and Asia. And the idea is very much to, in that idea of the superlative, France, the most supreme nation of the world, most powerful monarch of the universe, at the center of um, the universe. And I'd like to end with one of Lebrun's most complete works in which he combined all the visual arts in one space with that particular message, Louis XIV at the center of the world. And this is the ambassador's staircase at Versailles. This is a model from the 1950s because the, the space that was built in the 1670s was then destroyed in the 1750s by Louis XIV, um, Louis XV, uh, by Louis XV, Louis XIV's heir. And that is because that glass roof leaked, but also Louis XIV, Louis XV needed more room for his daughters. So they pulled the whole thing down. What we have, however, are many records, both in terms of text as well as images, that helped us um, recreate this um, staircase. And so what you have here is, again, at the very center, a bust of Louis XIV, flanked here by these trompe depictions of the four continents of the world, or the, the nations of the four continents of the world. So here you have, uh, uh, I think you have, H, I can't really see from here, and Europe, and then paired with allegorical depictions. Again, here, um, Europe, and maybe that, no, but I think that's Africa. And we have here, this is a model, for instance, for, for Asia. This is, this is one of the models that survive. And then here, this is one of these huge cartoons, a huge piece of paper that was used to stencil in the image onto the plaster when the, um, when the staircase was uh, created. And then a whole set of engravings was produced. And again, we have here uh, France. Uh, well, there, we don't have France. This is Europe, a very French version of Europe with a shield with the French royal arms. And that's very, very important because we have a text, again written by André Philippien, whom I mentioned earlier, who wrote the, uh, the description of the portrait of the king. And he describes the staircase and says that it is the most wonderful room and that it was created by the grandest, best artist for the greatest monarch of the universe. And he says that 
um, uh, that we have here, uh, France, because uh, the French are obviously the most distinguished uh, um, nation of Europe. So again, it's all about supremacy and um, superlatives. And the staircase really functioned as, as it were, an interface between the macrocosm, the outside world, and the, macro, uh, the microcosm that was um, Versailles. And it was used by uh, all the ambassadors were greeted there with great funfair and music. And they then uh, were received by the king and throned in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. You can see here, this, these are the ambassadors of Siam. It's a very well recorded um, a visit. And Louis XIV sit, seated here on uh, his silver throne and here, the envoys of Genoa here again with um, Louis XIV. And that all happened here in the Hall of Mirrors at um, Versailles. And that really was Lebrun's great last masterpiece, the, the vaults of the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. When you, when you look at the book, you will see that I use this image for the back of the cover, oh, the, the, the back of the book, and the Queens of Persia for the front. And that's really because they're like the two bookends of Lebrun's career at the royal court, the picture that afforded him the, the position of principal painter of the king, and then his last great work for uh, the king. Um, Lebrun is, is a man of power, but he's also a man of struggle because you know, it's, it, it's one thing to get to the position that he got into, but uh, to defend that position is also another thing. Lebrun had one key support, and that was the uh, French minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who really got him the position at court. But he dies in uh, 1683 when the gallery, the whole of mirrors, is being uh, decorated. And after that, Lebrun's career is in slight decline because the new administrator of the uh, royal buildings, uh, the Marquis de Louvois, is a supporter of Lebrun's fiercest rival, Mignard. And therefore, the last few years of Lebrun's life and career, so between 1683 and his own death in 1690, uh, are, are a struggle. Um, he, as I said earlier, designed all the silver furniture for whole, the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, uh, solid silver furniture that lined um, this room. So everything that is now gilt wood, this is all was made later to replace the silver furniture. You would have solid silver here. And the silver is then melted down in December or the beginning of December 1689, the decision is taken to melt down the silver. And in February 1690, Lebrun dies. Now, um, how is any of this relevant to us um, today? Well, <laughs> the question, <laughs> I must admit that when I started working on Lebrun, I didn't care whether it was relevant to any of us today because uh, it was relevant to me. I wanted to uh, learn more about Versailles and Lebrun and his relationship to Louis XIV. But as I was um, revisiting the, the proofs before uh, the publication of the book, I suddenly realized that it actually was much more prevalent than, than I cared to admit previously. We have over the, we all have over the last 18 months or two years witnessed some considerable political changes, not only in the United States, but also in Britain and indeed continental Europe. And what I thought was so striking about this is to think that some of the, I mean, I'm not suggesting that any of our political leaders would present themselves as um, Louis XIV did, um, but it's very, Intriguing that um, 
um, that to gain power and defend power, you use the same tools, and that is text and image. And what is interesting is that similar themes are still exactly as uh, important as they were 300 years ago. And although I'm, you know, I'm talking today of uh, democracies rather than absolute uh, monarchies, but um, things, well, subjects such as sovereignty or supremacy are still um, very important. And indeed, that idea of superlatives. I mean, I mentioned it, I think, several times uh, today, uh, this idea of you know, the greatest monarch of the universe, the greatest country in the world. I, I, went to, um, I went to a lecture at the Royal Academy a couple of years ago, the Royal Academy in London, and the Dean of St. Paul's concluded by saying that London was the greatest city in the world, which I must admit, took me a bit by surprise, and I was sort of, yeah. But it, uh, there was a neighbor in the audience who was really surprised, an American lady who got up and said, how could you possibly say London is the greatest city in the world when everyone knows New York is the greatest city in the world? <laughs> and I was sort of slightly uh, surprised by that. I mean, th there is, there is um, there's obviously, there can be a very endearing element to, uh, super uh, to um, superlatives. So for instance, uh, it, there's no question that my mother is the greatest mother in the world. There's, there's no question about that, and I won't have anyone argue with me on that. Um, but uh, in political terms, it's quite surprising that, that so unmeasurable an element still uh, plays a role. And, and that is what I, what I think is so interesting, is that um, you find that some of the rhetoric that was important 300 years ago is apparently still relevant today. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.